Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. I was out shopping today. There was lots of stuff in the stores, lots of mm-hmm. people with masks on. Yeah. All the stores handing out sanitizer, like uh, like sanit- sanitizer cloths to wipe your hands when you go in. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, lots about one in four people, one in five people maybe had masks on. But really? the good news is the stores were full, and I think we're pretty good um, at filling up those grocery stores. And I don't see that ending during this uh, during this uh, crisis. So Bruce, I we're here even today. Found some toilet paper the other day. Oh, there was tons today at yeah. uh, what stores I was at. It's, there's no shortage of trees in Canada. Well, no. <laughs> You have so to that think that always... sooner or later that problem is going to resolve itself, but uh, it's pretty yeah. crazy while it was happening. And Bruce, I'm I'm an optimist on this whole issue. Mm-hmm. I think that we're going to get through this, and it's going to there that uh, you know the brightest minds in the world are working on this, uh, working mm-hmm. on both treatments and vaccines. And I you know there's I, I'm not going to get into the specifics, but you know if you you just go on Google and and search for um, antiviral treatments for coronavirus, there's a number of things that are being looked at in a number of countries um vaccine same thing that's further down the road but i think uh, i'm 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 reading enough and i have enough faith in our scientific community brightest minds in the world that i'm bullish on a nhl season and I'm, of course more than that bullish on the whole world getting back in order sooner than later so um and at the cult of hockey that's how we are proceeding bruce we are proceeding well, as as if there's well. going to be a playoffs might as well Season is still underway by last I could tell. I mean, it might be over, but it might not be over. It's kind of, I called it Schrodinger's season in my post today because it's, uh, <laughs> we won't know until we open the box. What is the, what is the Schrodinger's reference for those? Oh, not Schrodinger's, with? Schrodinger's cat is a famous uh, um, cat uh, devised by the imagination of the great mathematician Erwin Schrodinger who uh, uh, he used it as, a, uh, as an explanation of probability uh, that the cat was in a box where there was one uh, molecule that was going to decay or not decay, and it was either going to kill the cat or not kill the cat. And so you have a box there, and the cat's either dead or alive, but you don't know which it is until you open the box. So it's uh, Schrodinger's cat is sort of famous for well, something's probably happened. We just don't know what it is, or something's going to happen. We not we don't know what it's going to be, and that's basically <laughs> the NHL season. It could be over after seventy-one games, or they could be handing out the Stanley Cup in is September. The, the cat to the dead orders, or I mean, anything's possible, right? Yeah. Is the cat dead or alive? Was that molecule yeah. crushed? Yeah. Was it radioactive? Was it or was it radioactive? Yeah. Okay. So that was a that was it was just a thought experiment. But it was just one of those things where you know some of the information, but you don't know all of the information. So you're dealing with probabilities rather than certainties. So yes. it's part of his, uh, yeah, um, part of the uh, probability theory of the 1930s. Yes. Oh. Did you put a link to that? You better put a link to that. What the uh, on your uh, post? Oh, there, okay. what, what it means? It's all, it's all I'm saying. <laughs> 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 I don't know what percentage of our readers will know what you what you what you referenced there, but I'm guessing it's not a hundred percent. Oh, okay. Here I thought all of our <laughs> readers were, you know. 
Well, I'll hold up my hand first and saying I needed oh, okay. you to explain it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know, I no, just everyone assume else can I'll throw out some rep. I'll throw out references that not everybody's going to get, and I'm comfortable with that. You know. But, Fair enough. Uh, sure. <laughs> now, now everyone else can hold up their hand without embarrassment. Yeah. Um, so uh, the latest news versus uh, TSN came out with some news yesterday on the season. And we're going to, in today's podcast, we're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about um, your latest post on the owner's newfound resiliency. And I have mm-hmm. to tell you, Bruce, with me digging into the power play and you digging into this, like every post I read, I'm, I'm more and more convinced. So if there is a Stanley Cup playoffs, the owners are winning, winning it. And I, this, I think this is what isolation and cabin fever does. I, I get more and more excited about the Edmonton Oilers the further that they are away. Well, and we haven't lost a game for over a week now. Damn straight. Well, I guess it is just a week, but yeah. We're a jug- the Oilers are now a juggernaut. <laughs> they haven't lost in a week. And um, I, I think this, you know, not losing streak is going to continue for a few months. <laughs> uh, but I, I am, I'm increasingly optimistic, maybe because I've looked, I've examined the best part of the Oilers team, which is Oilers power play. We're going to talk about that. But you looked at the Oilers uh, resiliency, so we're going to talk about yeah. that. But just the quickly the news, and most people have yeah. heard it, um, on TSN, various people were talking about uh, players were getting together and talking about maybe starting training camp um, mid-July season, um, like a few games at the end of the regular season, just to have everyone play an even number of games, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then um, start the playoffs, which will go... Uh, August and September, and then they'd have like I think a three-week draft and trading free agency season, and then start the next regular season, which would be 82 games. And the the thing that caught my mind, Bruce, is it's a lot of games in a short amount of time. First of all, but man, has the CBA changed everything? When you have revenue sharing, and you have the players and the owners working together Mm -hmm. um, with the idea of maximizing revenues. Suddenly, it's the players who are sitting there getting their heads together thinking, how can we get as many, like, how can we save the season? And I'm not saying they wouldn't want to save it anyway because they want to compete, they want to play. Of course they would. But there is an absolutely massive economic incentive for players with short careers to play out those contracts and to get the most because whatever the uh, league-wide revenues are, there's escrow. And if it's it's suddenly, you know, 50% of league revenues are realized, then escrow's I think 50%, like it's, you know, they'll, if they only meet half of their target, that's a huge issue for the players. So they all oh, are sure. working together to meet the target. And mm-hmm. um, so one of the reasonings, Bruce, for, for waiting till August rather than pushing earlier is like, you know, we have news today that an Ottawa Senator has the uh, the viruses that if, if you try to go too early and a player gets the disease, you're, you, you'll have to cancel yeah. it. I don't see yeah. them going, Bruce, until... Uh, Actually, I don't think anything happens at all until a few things are fulfilled. Number one, there's a, a, a treatment where mm-hmm. they do lower the death rate to something like the level of the, the regular flu or even a really virulent flu like H1N1 that had double the death rate. Until that happens, I don't think anything happens for any of these leagues. But that could happen where there's a, tre- a viral treatment and that could happen. Um, what's your take on it? Well, it's uh, it seems... Uh... That's a long. Uh, that's a long gap. I mean, originally we were talking about a month, six weeks kind of thing. Uh, picking it up in late July is four months from now, so it is. Uh, you know, that is time to turn things around. But uh, as we've seen, every day we find out something uh, um, 
something new and different about this thing. Some things positive, some things negative. There's certainly some apocalyptic uh, interpretations out there of what's going to happen if we don't get a treatment or vaccine uh, going or what have you. But, uh, you know, I mean, there's no point in throwing up our hands and giving up hope. You know, you just take in all the information and hope that the optimists are right. <laughs> so. <laughs> Here's hoping you're right. Here's hoping the NHL players are right and they'll finish the season and start another 82-game season after three weeks off next November and uh, play until following July. I don't know how they'll possibly keep their bodies uh, going through all that, but uh, uh, whatever you know, whatever variation of that there is, is uh, 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 it's encouraging that they're already thinking of possible solutions to keep the business thriving i think we're going to hear a lot about load management if they try to cram in that many games and it will be common for players to miss games uh regular scheduled rests during the season like basketball eh? so the depth of a team and frankly the owners are have never been positioned like this um in terms of depth in now who knows what will happen over the summer in terms of that that issue but man they've got you know, they've got some players who can step in, like Tyler Benson's a, a hockey player, and Evan Bouchard's going to be ready for the NHL. So this could really, um, if depth is needed and it's going to be needed in a, in a season where players are playing so many games, um, that could work. The orders, uh, the orders are, are set for it. This year, for example, McDavid missed seven games through, in, through injury and illness, uh, but in our load management, it's the same math. You know, in those games, the Oilers went 3-2-2. Two, and two. And if you have a team that, you know, you can do the, uh, give a player a night off now and again, and it's commonplace in basketball, certainly in soccer, you know, not everybody plays every game, even baseball, you know, that uh, that they, uh, uh, they, they get a day off or they're, you know, sitting with the reserves or whatever, and they might get in late in the game and they might not. But uh, uh, in hockey, it's more, are you on the bench or not? Um, but I could, I could see that starting to happen. And especially in a situation, like you say, where everything's compressed over like two, two seasons worth of playoffs, uh, that would be that would be pretty wicked. So it would make a certain amount of sense. And if you can win something close to half your games when you're sitting out a star player, well, you can make it work. If you lose every time the guy's out, you can't do it. But uh, I don't think the orders are there anymore. Yeah, they, they survived. Uh, bomb being out, they survived. Mm-hmm. survived uh, you know... Um... And they might they might expand the rosters. You could see that too in the NHL, where right. suddenly they can you can carry three goalies, or or you can um, have an extra player on your roster. And it, and um, we'll see what happens. Anyway, it's all yeah. speculation at this point. We're masters mm-hmm. of it, Bruce. We are masters. We are we are we are made for this moment. Masters mm-hmm. of speculation. Well, my guess is that the players will be more <laughs> in favor of load management games off if they're getting paid for those games off than if they aren't. So I would. <laughs> dare say that uh, you know if they're running the games now the trick is of course people are paying for those games they want to see the star players but yeah, probably same goes games. for soccer of... and basketball teams right so yeah yeah i mean premier league has they have these huge rosters of players to meet all of their different tournaments and games and competitions i mean a team like uh, liverpool or manchester united will have like essentially two full rosters of players um who are high quality players and they use half of them uh, Bruce, let's look at your post today. Uh, excellent post, by the way. Good work. Thank you. As always, it was a it's a study of um, 
the Oilers' resiliency this year. And the, and the what hit me over the head, Bruce, was just the number, like the losing streaks this sure. year as compared to other years. So what did you find out in terms of the Oilers' uh, resiliency in terms of that and losing streaks? Yeah, well, I went through, uh, I, I mean, it, I was expecting the result I found or most of the results that I found just because I follow, you know, this all season long and I knew that the team had struggled to put together long winning streaks, but what they'd very successfully done is avoided losing streaks. And only once all season have the Oilers lost three games in a row. Uh, and they had they went on one foul little run there just before Christmas where they they lost four, won one, and then lost the next two. So they won one out of seven. And that was in a time when uh, uh, the team the team was slumping a bit and a bunch of crap was happening. You know, they, they only got three points out of those seven games. But otherwise, all season long, uh, they've nipped every other two-game losing streak in the bud with a win. So after a two-game losing streak, they've won nine, lost one. And consistently, so you can pick out any three games out of the entire season. And other than that one four-game slide, they won at least one of the three games, any three in a row that you pick. They, they, they've never, you know, otherwise never lost three straight. So that's how you hang around in the standings, man, is, it, you know, if you... Even if you lose two and win one, well, you got two points out of that week, right? And so you might have dropped, you might drop a spot in the standings, but you're not falling off a cliff ever. So how and, many, Bruce, how many losing streaks this year as compared mm-hmm. to other years? Like how many yeah. two game plus losing streaks this year as compared to other years? Well, I looked at, I, I, I cut it off at three plus um, as sort of being a significant okay. slide. And in two, and I just looked at the McDavid era in 2015-16, his rookie year, and of course he missed half of it. Uh, they had 11 losing streaks of three or more games. And even in 2016-17, when they did make the uh, playoffs and had an excellent season with 103 points, they had six losing streaks, three or more games. They had a five-gamer, a four-gamer, four three-game losing streaks that year. And then, of course, the last two years, uh, they missed the playoffs. They had seven long losing streaks in 17-18. In 18-19, they only had five, but all of the five were at least four games, and four of those five were five games or six games. So, you know, just <laughs> one point they lost 11 out of 12, and at that point all hope was lost on the season. Well, this year they've had 10 losing streaks of one game where they won the next game, and that was that, 10 of two games. And then only one other losing streak all year. That was the that one four gamer in in mid December. So they've done an exceptional job of cutting uh, uh, cutting it off. So what what I looked at was all the games where they won after losing two in a row. And out of those, I cherry picked um, several games where. Uh, you know, sometimes they just went out and they blew out the other team, and that was that, right? They they, they whipped New Jersey four nothing. They pounded Columbus four one. You know, it wasn't particularly uh, a challenging win. But uh, four games of the nine that they won, uh, the Oilers trailed uh, halfway through the game or later, and had to come back to win it. And so I looked at the details of all those four games and saw how they pulled them out. Now with third period comebacks. Uh, typically three to two, uh, three two wins where they you know, were down two one or even two nothing in one case. Uh, uh, one of them was against Washington Capitals early in the season when uh, Washington pounded home three goals in the second period to take a three one lead. The Oilers have been shut out the previous two games. 
it looked really bad. Ovechkin had a couple of goals. It looked like the you know the Washington Stars were having their their way, and then the Oilers came back in the third. Drysaitel scored. McDavid scored with goalie out to tie it up. Then McDavid and Drysaitel teamed up for the game winner in overtime. So that put the end of that slump. Um, and then the other games were all against conference rivals, big games, and they won them all, all three of them, three to two in regulation. So in each case, they skunked uh, Vancouver, Nashville, and Winnipeg, who are one, two, three in the wildcard standings as we speak, and only a few points behind Edmonton. So winning in regulation was all that much more crucial. They, you know, they got two points and their rival got none in these games. And each time they were down 2-1 or 2 nothing. And each time it was Big Leon that was the driving force. He scored two goals in all four of these games that I highlighted in my post. Uh, was the first star in all four of the games. And all four were like huge wins for the Oilers when their backs were against the wall a little bit. You know, they were in a losing slide. They were down in the game. They were, you know, they were, you know, it was an uphill battle. And they were team efforts. You know, the goalies came through. They kept the team in the game or they, they uh, made the saves when it was tied or they, when they finally got ahead. The checkers checked. The penalty killers penalty killed to uh, to riff off an old Glenn Sather. Stick. But the big guys came through and scored. McDavid as well. Like, he had eight points in these four games. Drysaddle, ten. But it was especially Leon that was, uh, you know, he was the first star of all four of those games. So he was, he's, um, uh, his MVP uh, credentials, you know, people look at the numbers. And, you know, these guys at Evolving Wild have been looking at his overall numbers and criticizing. But, you know, the numbers don't tell the whole story. Uh, well, let's start with that. It's a story. There's a narrative to what happens during a season. It's not just about points and and goals and stuff. I mean that there that's certainly a big contributing part of it. But when you look at the when they name this uh, the MVP, they don't just say numbers. They say this is what this guy did for his team. This is how he came through. Here's a big moment in a game where he came through and, and you know Leon's built a pretty compelling narrative this year of coming through in the clutch in big games uh, and important games for the Oilers. So when you when you put those collection of little narratives together with the big one that is his 110 points when nobody else has reached 100, uh, I, I think it's a strong case. Even as there are, you know, there are warts on the season as a whole, man, there are a lot of games where uh, where he was the difference maker. Bruce, it's a huge feather in his cap, this this evidence you've dug out you know his play in these big games and you know people who put a lot of stock in the on ice numbers just tons of false positive and, and negatives in the on ice numbers if you actually dig into his contributions to goals and scoring chances he was the best oiler on the team so i, I just I, I don't you know people can make the arguments about plus minus numbers well i i think people should be skeptical about you know, there people are skeptical about goals plus minus, official goals plus minus. Well, it's based on the same essential theory as the other honest numbers. It's a plus and a minus mm-hmm. on goals as opposed to shots, like or shots at net is coursey, but they all have lots of false positive and negatives. And be careful. If you put a lot of weight in that, you're gonna you're gonna make a statement like Valerie Nikushin was its 
comparable player this year to DeAndre. So that's that's all I'm going to well, say about that. Yeah, well, and I'm just going to go back to the narrative thing. I mean, because that is how, I mean, the writers, not statisticians, right, that pick the, pick the Hart Trophy winner. Yeah. So, I mean, let's bear that in mind. But, I mean, it is all about the narrative. I mean, Taylor Hall, the year he won the MVP, it was all about him picking up a, a lame New Jersey team by the bootstraps and willing them into eighth place. You know, and it's a compelling narrative, and it won him the, the heart. And it was well, about Peter Shirelli's terrible trade, too, which was mentioned well, every yeah, second that was Yeah, that happened, too. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I also went through the games, and this was a little bit more cherry-picking, but uh, uh, important games... That weren't necessarily off a of two-game losing streaks, or you know, or whatever. But they were they were tough, tough games where the Oilers typically came from behind or uh, had to rise against the tide uh, to pull out the win. Uh, and basically, three-two, four-three kind of games against uh, uh, again Vancouver, Nashville, St. Louis. You know, important games uh, against uh, against key rivals or, or top teams. And again. Uh, in one after another of these of these close, hard-fought wins, where um, uh, Drysaitel did his job of being, you know, contributing the big goal or the big play at the key time, and and uh, everybody else did their job, and the the team found a way to win. And uh, these are games they would have lost many past years, many many past years. That uh, certainly all the time we've been blogging about the team. They. Uh, other than the one playoff year, obviously they found a way to lose more games than they won every other year, and and uh, this year they've got that turned around, and it's uh, a lot of it is just this this ability to come through and gut check time and pull out uh, pull out these key games. Alrighty, uh, Bruce, I'm still working on uh, the power play issue, mm-hmm. and um, first of all, I want to go back to something. Yeah, I was. I started out the whole series. Uh, one of the things I was looking at is why was the Oilers' power play so crappy before the McDavid era, and mm-hmm. the first year of the McDavid era. And one mm-hmm. of the things I noted was like I thought that Taylor Hall, um, they just always failed to get Taylor Hall in the right spot to shoot. Like uh, yeah. Ryan, Ryan Nugent Hopkins was on the right half wall. That was that was Hall's best spot. I still hold to that. But I was mm-hmm. confronted with some kind of compelling evidence. You know, my my idea was that Taylor Hall is a really good shooter. And mm-hmm. that if you only set him up there consistently, he would have scored a lot more. It's it's hard for me not to believe that it's so firmly lodged in my head that I, you know, that's my narrative on that. But yep. Kerry L. Kettle, who is on uh, Twitter, at Kerry L. Mm-hmm. Kettle, he's one of the most uh, sober and rational and calm mm-hmm. Oilers commentators you're going to find. He hit me with some stats, and I'll just uh, throw these out at you. And sure. um, It made me rethink my thought on Hall as a shooter. He's obviously a great point producer, yeah. can be, if he's healthy. Here's what Kerry Kettle said. Um, I disagree with your assessment of Hall as a shooter. He is a mediocre shooter at best and scores with quantity, not quality of shots. <laughs> Consider this. Of the 433 NHL forwards with 200-plus games since 2013, Hall ranks 271st in shooting percentage, 9.8 percentage. Tied with Jay Beagle, Kyle Blodziak. <laughs> <laughs> that was, it's, those, it's those two names, which now there might be some good players also in that range. Like Kerry did a good job of picking yeah. the two, like in terms of narrative, he did a very good job of picking narrative. Like 
Jay Beagle and Kyle Brodziak. So, but he is only as carry, mm-hmm. he has carry 271st out of 433. Uh-huh. Like, I don't know what dry saddle is, like a real sniper, like Leon in the last three oh, years. He's been over 20% the last yeah, two probably, years running. He's so probably he'd be way first. up there. He's way so up that there. was sure. Okay. So when you, I put a lot of weight and that kind of, that's mm-hmm. the kind of statistical analysis, analysis that's hard to argue against, but he continued. <laughs> Hall's shot is not, and has never been a real threat. Hall does his damage on the rush, not one-timers. For comparison, here's Hall's shooting percentage since 2013 again. Hall, 9.8%. Zach Cassian, 11.8%. RNH, 11.9%. Chason, 12.6%. Eberly, 13.1%. McDavid, 15%. Dreisaitl, 16.9%. So, like, my, my whole argument on the power play is, this power play became good when the when the whole focus became on unleashing McDavid and Drysaddle as shooters on the power play and figuring out a way to accommodate them both because both of them their natural spot is the right half wall and the winners found a way eventually to accommodate both and set up both and get the most out of both on the power play and I was thinking well if they only done the same with Hall now they never did that with Hall but but Kerry's evidence of Hall not being maybe the kind of shooter that I that I was thinking he was is kind of compelling. Uh, well, what do Hall you say? Is, he's a hard shooter and a bit of a scattergun in my experience. Like every once in a while, he picked the top corner and you go, holy moly, that, that was unstoppable. What a shooter. But then he'd fire one over there. I mean, and these are only shots on goal, of course, that they're calculating shooting percentage. But uh, but yes, a volume shooter. Uh, yes, good off the rush, which doesn't really translate well to power play. Um uh, scoring, you know, not many power play goals are scored on the rush. Some, but I would say a, a much lower percentage than other other aspects of the game. Um, and you yourself embedded in that fine post you wrote, the twenty one hundred and fifty two word post that read like one of mine. Uh, that one had. I went. Uh, I did the full McCurdy on that one. You, you had some great evidence in there of Hull's power play points season by season. And he only really had one, that one MVP season where he ripped it up on the power play. And all the other years, he was sort of quite mediocre, you know, for a first unit guy, 15 to 20 point range, 10 to 20 point range. I can't remember the exact numbers, but I was I was surprised, frankly, at how low they were, uh, knowing that, you know, he, he was had pretty good outputs of point scoring in those years. I just would have thought more of those points would have come on the power play, but. Uh, it suggested to me that he was anything but a specialist at the at the five on four game. You know, Bruce, I think it, it I think it highlights how little you and I and and the whole kind of people who dig into stats how little we look at power play numbers in a way. Mm-hmm. Like the fact that we didn't know that, um, it's a little bit surprising to me uh, that that wasn't something we knew about Taylor Holland in terms of like signing him this summer. I was thinking mm-hmm. about like there's been talk of the Oilers bringing him back. Right. Of he's a tremendous player. Talk, 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 yeah. talk, talk. Yeah. Well, where does, where, <laughs> if you're going to pay him to be a first line player, uh-huh. where does he Love fit me. on the Oilers' power play? He, he, listen, he doesn't. Well, he doesn't is the truth. On the top power play and on this power play, there's no, there's no, so you're getting this. I, I haven't looked at his even strength scoring numbers over the same time period from 2013. I bet you they're pretty darn good. Bet you mm-hmm. Taylor Hall's, uh, 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 you know, Top at least top thirty, I'm gonna guess. Even strength attacker in the NHL since 2013. Mm-hmm. But 
I don't see the fit on the Oilers in terms of the amount of money he's going to command and the fact that the power play is full up. Because if you were only paying him to be like this great even strength player, that would be fantastic. But you have to play pay him more than that. You have to give him that money that goes to the top power play guys as well. So, and with the Oilers cap crunch, with all of these players to sign, I, I don't know. I just, I have a hard time making sense of ever Taylor Hall playing again for the Edmonton Oilers in the salary cap era. I, unless he's well, just willing to take the biggest haircut on his salary on a really short term deal. Who I don't yeah. know. And you want to move out the Nuge to make room for him? I, I'm not well, sure. No, I do. no, yeah. I mean, no, I don't. Now that he's found his own home on the, on the left wing, I'm not sure how much of an upgrade that would be. Yeah. Um, and uh, I did. I had some knowledge of Hall's power play numbers well with the Oilers, but what I hadn't realized was that how how poor they'd been as a devil, other than that one year, which obviously was the year that everybody studying him. And uh, this uh, past couple of years, that's kind of gone away. Uh, so. Uh, the power play numbers of the Oilers themselves, like I could have told you in a New York minute that Drysdale's had uh, double-digit power play goals in three of the last four years, for example, uh, and that's excellent production for for a goal scorer. But it's um, uh, it, you're right that a top-line player has to fit in on the top power play unit. And you're talking about you know the big money guys, and I'm not sure where that spot is on uh, on Edmonton's unit. They have you know, on the one three one, the the three is the three is amply filled with excellent players. And so if they need Paul's another skill player, front. he's not a point yeah. man. You know, Yamamoto. If they needed another skill guy, I mean, Yamamoto is the right shot guy who could play the left mm-hmm. wall, right? Like that's the next most logical thing. So the other thing, Bruce, I think I got in a little bit into the shooting numbers. Um, when I was ta- when we were talking last about the Oilers' power play, but again, what really hit me over the head is is again, what transformed the Oilers' power play more than anything else was getting finding the the getting the right players in the right spots on the ice so they could get off their shots and having other players not shoot so much. And I think a hallmark wow. of the Todd McClellan era was the shoot 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 philosophy. They really believed. I, and I could be, maybe I'm, maybe I'm uh, gaslighting the McClellan era, but I, I can just remember lots of conversation from McClellan and the other play, uh, coaches about, we got to get shots on that on the power play. Like within 10 seconds of a face off, we have to have a shot. You know, we got to get a shot and it all flows from the shot. Get that shot on net. It breaks down the, the formation yeah. and good things happen after the shot. Mm-hmm. Bruce, I don't think, I don't think I'm making that up. I, do, you, do you remember hearing that? Yes. Final okay. pucks to the net. Oh, yeah. Okay. So so that strategy, Better though. Better get the shin pad assassin firing away in there, right? <laughs> that strategy was probably the exact wrong strategy. When you look at the numbers, that's what I'm saying. Now, they had the one good outlier year, 2016-17 year. But the four other years of the McClellan era, uh, lead, leading into the Hitchcock era, they, all, they they didn't have good power plays. And uh, and what you saw in those in those years was McDavid not shooting enough. And Clefbaum and Sekera shooting too much. So and and Drysaddle not shooting enough. So I'll just go quickly through the shot totals for through those years. In the first year of the McClellan era, when they had a mediocre power play, McDavid had 8.1 shots at net. Drysaddle had 6.9 shots at yet net. Sekera 14.3. This is per 60. Excuse me. 
So McDavid, eight, uh, 8.1 shots per 60 power play uh, minutes. Dry settle, 6.9. Sekera, 14.3. He was drastically outshooting McDavid and Dry settle on the power play that year, Andre Sekera. Okay, we go to the next year, um, 2016-17. Sekera, he put uh, 11.9 shots at net per 60. Um, Clefbaum, 12 shots per 60. McDavid was at 8.4. Now, Drysaddle had a big year on the power play that year. He was at, got up to 13. So that was one of the, that's why I think that was one of the successes of that power play is Drysaddle was shooting more and uh, scoring more. The next year, though, Clefbaum, they, they really doubled down on that point shooting. Clefbaum gets uh, 17, or excuse me, 16.8 shots per 60. 16.8. McDavid's at 8.9 per 60. Drysaddle is drops to 11.4 per 60. So Clefbaum, again, is the mad bomber on the power play. Like the, the whole focus of the power play or one of the, you know, the player most likely to shoot, the big focus is let's get Oscar Clefbaum to drive that puck at net and go from there. And again, that was a, that was a 31st uh, worst. That was the 31st ranked power play in the NHL. It was a terrible power play. And I remember hearing that year specifically, like, let's get shots at net. Let's get shots at net from the point. Let's put that puck at net. All right. Now we go to the better pl- power plays of the last couple of years. Um, so McDavid's shots at net has gone from eight or nine shots at net. So 2018-19, uh, it was 13.7. And last year, it was uh, 13.7. So he's taken about four or five more shots per 60 on the power play. Dreisaitl, he's up to, uh, he goes from 11.4 per 60 to 15.1 and 13.7. So they're getting, and Clefbaum, he goes, he drops from 16.8 per 60 to 10.0 and this past year, 8.8 per 60. Good. So, and this is what you and I saw, I think, is in Mm -hmm. Clefbaum, he became a master of moving the puck to the right half wall, to the left half wall, yeah. keeping the puck in the zone, moving the puck quickly to the guys who should be shooting the puck. So they moved away from that shoot, shoot, shoot from the point to let's actually figure out who our best shooters are and do everything we can to set them up in their choice shooting spots. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm you. I'd, I'd rather see Oscar Clefbaum passing the puck than shooting it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, we all remember that 100-mile-an-hour heater he put past Martin Jones at tie game uh, five in 2017. But that's, you know, the exception to, to the rule of, you know, uh, he doesn't generally overpower goalies. And, you know, I, I think he has to shoot sometimes just to keep him honest, right? Just like a, yeah. just like a, a fastball pitcher has to throw, uh, you know, the odd slider in there just to, keep the batter on his heels a little bit. Uh, but his pri- priority is pass, pass, pass. And, uh, you know, pass to Connor, pass to Leon, pass to Nuge. Okay, now I can shoot one, you know. And that's... Uh, and, yeah, and that became his focus, too. Like, I think in, in terms of his own mindset on the power play, he changed from thinking of himself as a shooter mm-hmm. to a passer. And I think that really... Um, I mean, his passing ability this year, I just noticed so many passes right in the wheelhouse of the guy getting the pass, either Nugent Hopkins or Drysaddle or McDavid. He was putting the puck perfectly right where they needed it, right when they needed it, and moving it quickly. And I I, I give Oscar Clefbaum all the credit in the world for this power play. Yeah. 
I know there was talk through the year of moving him off, and I might have suggested that earlier in the year. Mm-hmm. As this year went on, I just, I just, my my respect and admiration for his work on the power play shot through the roof because I could see what he was doing, and it was working. Puck was going through him, and he was moving it to the open guy, and he was making good decisions as to which open guy. He had good choices, had good options, and that's what you know. That's what you want. We talked about this last podcast about the point guard is that much more dangerous when he has two or three different offensive weapons that he can distribute the ball to rather than one main guy that everybody's watching. But uh, he is, um, um, you know, those passes are on the money nine times out of ten. And uh, he's, um, you know, he'll he'll overload it on one side a couple times and, you know, he might pass to Nuge and go back to Oscar (coughs) and back to Nuge and back to Oscar. And, you know, on the other side, you have Leon, who instead of getting impatient and wanting the puck, he's now saying, okay, now they've got the other guys occupied over there. Now is my time to sneak into the top of the circle and uh, see if we can get passed through. You know, and they've, they've, uh, they've really kind of unleashed, I think, the, the offensive weaponry across that power play very well. And, and as you say, Glenn Gulitson is the coach in charge of that. So credit where due, uh, they, uh, they really turned it around. Alrighty. So uh, Maddie's giving me heck on Twitter for uh, dreaming that the Oilers might win the cup. He Maddie tweets at me, "What are you smoking while staying at home and working and remitting on the Oilers? Win the Stanley Cup?" Question uh, mark. Because because I I tweeted out the more you know what I was saying on the podcast earlier that I'm I'm getting optimistic. I also in my tweet said cabin fever setting in? Question mark. Sure. So yeah, I know that I'm a little bit overly optimistic here, but why not? Uh, why not dare to dream? <coughs> Have some fun. Dreams are what we got at this moment, David. Indeed, we can have our Bruce. we can have our dreams, or we can have our waking nightmare. We got plenty. <laughs> we got plenty of that throughout the day, so we might as well harbor a few secret dreams in the, or not so secret, I guess that uh, there are better days ahead. I mean, we got to hang our hat on something. Hey, I think it's wide open. The Stanley Cup playoffs. It's you know these teams are all going to come back. They're going to be off. It's you know it's the players who are taking best care of themselves in the summer here. Mm-hmm. And and are finding a way to work out. It's not going to be easy for them to work out. But we know Connor McDavid's going to find a way. He's got I'm sure a hyperbark chamber uh, locked away somewhere that he can uh, <laughs> do his magic in. Um, no, I, I'm serious about McDavid. Like he's the kind of guy, the kind of fanatic who's going to be finding a way to work out like crazy. I'm sure all summer long. And uh, when this when these teams come back, it's going to be uh, the balance will be shifted again in the NHL. And this Oilers team, Bruce, if they can get goaltending, you know, are they the favorite to win the Stanley Cup? Of course not. But no. could they get to the Stanley Cup final? Oh, yeah, they could get to the Stanley Cup final. And with if they get if Koskin or Smith or both of them get get really hot. We've saw we've seen that in the past. I mean, they have the two best players in the NHL. So I was Bruce. just going to say, I mean, you, you, you when you stack up your playoff odds at the beginning of the. Of the playoffs, what other rosters can you look at and have two players the caliber of 97 and 29? Yeah, and if they start calling some penalties. Other deeper teams that have a lot of good players, but just the upper, upper, high, high end players, I'd stack Oilers up against anyone. Yeah. Now, goaltending's a, it's, it's a shape, it's a roll of the dice. It's a, who knows? But the the Oilers goalies were good this year, generally speaking. They were okay. You know, I, I would say, 
they outplayed the opposition goalies, excuse me, in more than half the games. That the Oilers goalies were better than the opposition goalies in more than half the games this year. And it might have been as high as 60%. So good for the Oilers goalies. They, they, we, they, we came in with lots of questions about Koskinen and Smith. Yep. And uh, I was completely content with the answer that we got. They weren't the best goals in the NHL, but they were far from the the mediocre goal goaltending that we'd seen in previous years here. So, Bruce, um, we're gonna post this podcast right away on your your new okay. post, and I'll have a new post tonight on the on the uh, playoffs. Our our intention, we've been working on our schedule, is to post every night one post. So there'll be something fresh at the Cult of Hockey every day. Um, mm-hmm. You're going to start your season in a review of players. Yep. I'm going to keep picking away at the Oilers, different aspects of the Oilers team. Yep. So we will have one fresh post, and we're hoping to post kind of at midnight. So it'll be there uh, for the early morning crowd um, right as now. you get up to whatever your day holds for you. You know, if you need a little break, just just come to our come to the blog, and we'll have something there on the Oilers. Looking forward to just like the any off seasons. Just every like every off season, and some of them have been the full six months, as you know. Uh, but our objective has always been one post a day, at minimum. Whether you know it's player reviews, prospects, draft talk. I mean, all those all those things are still relevant, assuming the game itself is. And so it's just the off season started about three weeks early, and and we don't know for sure that this season is still on suspended status, not over. So who knows when. Uh, uh, when they might get back to playing games, but in the meantime, we just have to approach it like we do uh, uh, um, an off season and and do our do our reviews, go through it player by player, look at some of the team aspects and and uh, uh, and the roster construction and uh, you know all those kind of details. But uh, it's uh, you know to some extent business as usual. Other than the, there's no playoffs going on while we're already looking back at a failed season we're actually looking back at a pretty successful season there's a, there's some uh, some real progress for us to uh, uh, to contemplate that uh, uh, the Oilers have seen under Ken Holland and uh, and um, Dave Tippett and Glenn Goulson and the rest you know that uh, uh, they, there really are positive signs in the, in the right direction that uh, uh, will make some of these uh, columns a little more fun to read or to or to, well, to write and to read for uh, uh, for people, even as we're you know we're we're in suspended animation, as it were. Indeed. Well, Bruce, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, David. It's always a pleasure to talk about hockey with you and with people. Anybody who's interested in the, in the subject, I can talk about hockey. Long time. <laughs> <laughs> no one would have guessed so. that. <laughs> so, yeah, anyways, we've got uh, uh, lots more to come. And uh, thanks for listening and for reading, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>